Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is sponsored by EY. Money is changing, both in form and function. Money Reimagined is about the changing nature of money, digital currencies, and various topics related to finance, blockchain technology, artificial intelligence, and more. Michael Casey and Sheila Warren walk us through the dynamic and evolving nature of the global economy and the implications for businesses, governments, and individuals as they must adapt to new payment methods and technologies. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Today they're going to continue their conversation with Troy Cross for part two of episode 127, Mining Your Share, the Carbon Footprint of Bitcoin. And now, Michael Casey. Now, this is the way the market works. You know, over time in this gradual way by mining uh, and because you're sort of like picking up otherwise wasted fuel and, and so forth in a, in a kind of an incremental way you are contributing to uh, managing climate change, particularly if you follow your philosophical way of balancing these yeah. things out. However, the world faces a much bigger problem than that, right? And, and it is that we need actually to really rapidly reduce carbon. And I've always been fascinated, intrigued by the idea, I suppose, that if we were to get everybody looking at Bitcoin for what it is and seeing it as a kind of an unstoppable economic system in the same way we look at weather or conceiving of it as a thing that you cannot shut down and therefore, how do I actually work with it as opposed to against yes. it? Then you would drive policy. It would try to create incentives and structures to make sure that that, that mining actually did, or at least the, that the marginal cost of energy would consistently fall in favor of renewable energy, right? So I, there wouldn't be subsidies of, of dirty fuel and, and so forth. And there'd be international systems to try to, but you would use Bitcoin as a way to actually underwrite that development of the cheapest stuff. But you need policy yeah. to be in the middle of it. And for that, we need the narrative to change. So the yeah. end of the day, we're actually, yes. we're actually yes. captured less by the economics and by the, by the physicality of this whole problem as we are by the narrative, because the narrative is is the Sierra Club's take on it, is the Biden yeah. administration's take on it. And the more yeah. that we do that, the well, less of an opportunity we have to actually take advantage of this like force in a positive this, way. This is this is sort of like been my struggle, and I have not in any way succeeded, and I do not have the answer to this because we're up against a kind of relentless media push, and of course a push by Greenpeace USA uh, with Chris Larson's uh, five million 
I wish I had a way of a, a simple way to flip the narrative, but I don't. I have stories and then I have statistics. The stories that I like to tell are about what, for instance, we're doing with methane capture. Methane is 84 times as warming as CO2 over a, a 20 year period. And it's uh, 25 times as warming over a hundred year period. And we right now have, have a lot of uh, miners who are using waste methane in some way as fuel to mine Bitcoin. The biggest uh, implementations of this are like by Crusoe Energy on the oil fields where we're we're converting uh, stacks, which now flare the gas inefficiently at, say, 91% efficiency. We're converting those to 99% efficiency and thereby eliminating more methane. That's somewhat complicated because people are like, yeah, but that gives revenue to uh, oil companies. Very minimal revenue, but it does. I think of it as just a much cheaper flare stack that is a better flare stack. But also, and this is kind of more exciting to me, uh, we have methane uh, that is simply venting on landfills. Mm. And right now, the, the methane just, just goes straight into the air. It's not, it's not even flared on, a, on quite a few uh, landfills in, in the U.S. And I'm working with companies that are trying to pay for gas capture systems mm -hmm. and uh, actually install a very expensive CapEx. It's like $50,000 an acre to capture the methane. Uh, and then, uh, and then mine Bitcoin with it, uh, and until interconnection arrives to these landfills, and these are spread throughout uh, the Midwest, for instance, in pretty de economically depressed regions. Uh, so there's like a humanitarian story here, and there's a methane capture story. Yeah. What the UN calls our, our strongest lever in the fight against climate change, and Bitcoin mining is really ideally suited because of its location agnosticism and scalability to sort of find the the methane leak wherever they are. The latest I found was Turkmenistan, which is unbelievable amount of, of methane. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It, you can sort of view these sa satellite maps and just basically send in the miners like, uh, you know, like paratroopers to like zap mm -hmm. these huge leaks of methane. That's an incredible narrative, which if you just think like Bitcoin yeah. bad, you're going to completely miss this stuff. Yeah. But I think, so I'll just tell you, I mean, so I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that CCI does have a big paper we've been pulling together over almost a year now that documents these use cases of where Bitcoin mining is actually neutral to positive. And so we did a round of that at Sarah Week, you know, a little bit ago, which is the giant energy conference. We actually had an episode of this podcast with some folks who were talking about methane capture and these kinds of things and flaring and whatnot. But that's going to come out in a couple of weeks all, with all the use cases really well researched and described and all of that. And I think, you know, it, the issue isn't so much that people don't believe those stories or believe those use cases because the evidence is there and, and people who push into it do that. The, the, the challenge, of course, in the United States is with everything is the politics of it. And to your point about oil company revenue, that's a huge political issue. Yeah, it is. It's a huge political issue. And so even though the numbers are what they are and the facts are what they are, the politics of it are really, really complicated. And the politics yeah. of climate and energy in the United States are extraordinarily complicated. And so one thing that we say when we meet with a lot of folks who are in the environmental and climate change community is, you know, what what is what is the goal? If the goal is a global goal of reduction, then you have one approach. If the goal is not in the US or more NIMBY in an approach, then you have a different approach, right? And the kinds of case studies that, that we pulled together that you're talking about today really predicate are predicated on that global goal of comprehensive reduction, more in line with kind of, you know, a COP. And certainly when you look around the world, you see Central Asia immediately eliminated as just a huge problematic space in terms of, you know, emissions, all kinds of things, right? But also cheap. And so the narrative right now, I think, is that Bitcoin mining is going to go where it's cheap. 
not necessarily that it's going to be, it can be incentivized to go where it's clean or where it's actually productive in terms of overall reductions. And that I think is the piece that is sometimes gets missed because a lot of folks who go in talking about the positive opportunity aren't telling this kind of global story in a way that is relevant to politicians who are focusing on their jurisdiction and are driven by what their constituents and voters want, which is a narrower thing. It's, I couldn't it's agree a more. Challenge, systemic challenge that I don't know how I don't have a solution to that. I mean, that. I couldn't agree more. And I, I saw this, especially in the New York state legislation, where they literally have a provision that says we cannot meet our climate targets at the expense of global climate targets. And I had this discussion with the Office of Science and Technology Policy as well. This is a failure of carbon accounting and the Paris Agreement, because if what you do, if all you do is have a local target and you can meet that through offshoring the production of goods that you then import, then it's just sort of a signaling mechanism of virtue for nations to meet their targets and doesn't actually make a difference. I think what's powerful about Bitcoin is that these incentives are endogenous to the system. What Bitcoin mining incentivizes, and this is why like, I have my idea, and that's kind of what got me public, but bigger than my idea is this thought that you just said, Sheila, which is that Bitcoin mining will be driven to the cheapest power in the world, and that any consequence of its consumption of energy will be the consequence of consuming the cheapest energy in the world. And how long will this take to happen? Well, we're already seeing it happening. It's happening rapidly. And I'll just say, unless we have a price explosion, post-havening, you're going to see Bitcoin miners decimated in a good way, unless they have super cheap power. Super cheap power consumption is good for energy systems and for the environment. I think we have the wrong sort of moral that about power consumption, which is a scarcity model, but it's also a, conser it's a conservation model. We have a scarce resource, power. We must conserve it. That's not how electricity works. Electricity mm -hmm. immediately disappears if you don't use it. And the kind of systems we're moving to produce a ton of electricity that we are not going to be able to use in any other way. That's because we're going to triple electricity generation over the next 20, 25 years. We're going to triple or quadruple or even quintuple electricity generation. We're going to do that with intermittent sources of activity that don't adjust to our demand. So when you ask the question, what is the effect on energy systems, on the environment of Bitcoin mining? You need to say, what's the effect of something that's going to pay one, two cents a kilowatt hour, if that, for power? Mm. And I think that's actually positive. And to your point, Michael, about the timing, yes, the urgency is real, but I don't see anything else really that's that kind of uh, excellent subsidy uh, for, right. for cheap stranded energy. In fact, we just step out of the way, it's going to do it. It's going to work. Exactly. Right? I, I think that's okay. Yes. I kind of wanted to go move, move faster. And what, what more can we as a society do to do it? And I think about the thing that we're, that we're not forgetting about, but is the kind of other element to this is like, why do we have Bitcoin at all? Right. And this is where you get this whole debate about, like, you know, okay, energy use, uh, regulating energy use for a particular use case is like passing judgment on that use case when in fact, like, you know, are Christmas lights more of a, of a threat? You know, is that more of a wasteful activity than Bitcoin? And if you believe Bitcoin is valuable, so the question is, what is Bitcoin valuable for, right? And I think that much of the narrative, much of the negative narrative is based on the assumption that people look oh, at yeah. it and go, this is a wasted activity. There's nothing beneficial in this, which then brings us all the way back to, okay, why? Why do we think it matters? And I've always came in into it from the financial inclusion level. I always thought of it as something that was valuable. I've in Argentina, as everyone hears me say over and over again for six years. And I saw this as something that resolved a fundamental problem in a monetary system of a place like that. And then looked at, you know, Africa and elsewhere. So I've, I've, I've often thought like, it would be much easier to tell not only the story of Bitcoin's benefits, 
but also of its environmental benefits, if those two things coincided. So I've always like, at one stage I was very excited because Block, and I don't know whether the Block are, are, are still doing this, but they were they were getting interested in attaching Bitcoin mining to the expansion of decentralized solar microgrids and putting them in sort of like developing countries and figuring out, okay, here's now, not only is it's a cheap, you've got a cheap source of energy that you are encouraging people to use, a renewable source in these, you know, remote marginalized communities, and you're subsidizing it through Bitcoin, which gives them also on top of that an, an extra sort of financial tool to use. And you just see this wonderful kind of positive feedback loop of what comes out of that. And I was specifically yep. thinking about of El Salvador, right? Because yep. El Salvador, yep. that's how I want to see it. Instead, what you get in El Salvador is a state-owned volcano mine, I know. right? And all the Bitcoiners are cheering this thing. It's not. That is just feeding back in the narrative of a dictator, as opposed to like, how do we actually sort of get these two narratives to come together? Unfortunately, I feel like we're not, we're not there. Grand scale rather than this micro scale. It's coming. It's coming. Yeah. Are you looking to fast track your enterprise growth? With tools and solutions from EY, you could run your essential business applications, including private transactions and zero knowledge applications on public Ethereum. From supply chain to procurement to sustainability, EY blockchain's APIs and zero knowledge tools make public Ethereum accessible to all enterprise users. Find out why some of the world's leading companies are building on Ethereum with EY. Visit us at blockchain.ey.com. I had the same thought that you just articulated. And I was working with a company that was trying to bring solar-powered microgrids. They were already building solar-powered microgrids in Africa. They were thinking about whether other mining could accelerate the process of rolling those out to communities in Africa particularly. And uh, at the time, this was like a year ago, the break-even prices were high enough and CapEx was expensive enough that their machines would just depreciate too fast with a low uptime in that scenario. And I had this idea of like, hey, we've got an e-waste problem, supposedly, although that doesn't really exist, of, of machines at the end of their lifespan. Why don't we get big miners to donate their, their S9s at the end of life to your microgrid? And we'll hmm. like solve everybody's problem. Hmm. And, um, and then everything kind of collapsed. But that is happening, not quite yet with solar microgrids, although we'll get there. But it's happening with micro hydro in yeah, Malawi hydro, and yeah. in Kenya. Those are incredible stories. And it's only going to expand. As I said... As the margins come down, uptime matters less. And uptime is the big enemy of solar mining with solar. And so we will get there. But right now, it's micro hydro telling that story. I think more generally, the future of mining is just the cheapest energy. And so think about where that is and what it looks like. I agree with you that like subsidies could shape how things go. But more and more, as you see Bitcoin as a global force, it, it kind of eats up and spits out subsidies. It, it, it ate up and spit out subsidies in Inner Mongolia and in China, and that's part of why it was banned. It did the same thing in Kazakhstan. And then, you know, it's like if you make power cheap somewhere, the miners will just flock to you in, until you have exhausted your subsidy. It's a wild tool. It's, it's almost a perfect tool of carbon arbitrage and a perfect destruction of subsidy. I'm thinking about subsidies I would like. It's like think about things that would generally help a greener grid demand response participation right. and flexibility. Subsidize it, not for Bitcoin, but just in general. And mm -hmm. that would immensely help like make freer markets in electricity. Bitcoin miners were well positioned to take advantage of it. How about uh, carbon capture credits for, uh, say, methane? Uh, if you can reward carbon capture, Bitcoin will help you take, take advantage of that. Right. So think about basically pro-energy subsidies that you need anyway for infrastructure and for climate. Mm -hmm. Make those in an industry-neutral way. 
Bitcoin will find a way to get in there and take advantage of some of those subsidies and deliver you a social good. One more thing, back to why Bitcoin matters and its value. Of course, I run into this constantly. Why does it matter and is it worth anything? And a lot of the critique is like, we shouldn't spend a single watt on Bitcoin because it's just for gambling, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to know how to respond to that except to say, you know, check your financial privilege on the one hand and put put yourself in the shoes of somebody who doesn't have good money, but also think about the philosophical commitment that you are tacitly endorsing here, which is that there is some system of social value that you can divine and other people disagree with you and they're just flat out wrong. And they are going to derive policy recommendations around your vision of value. Do you really want to go down that road? Like you mentioned Christmas lights, but just literally Think about how, particularly in the US, we squander power at an ungodly rate. The comparisons across nations and industries, everything compels in comparison to just living a normal American life. The logical conclusion of this strategy would be to label every activity with a social value score, some kind of you know coefficient, then have a tax that have a tax that doesn't just tax energy, but taxes uses of energy in accordance with how socially useful they are. So hospitals would pay zero, but then Christmas lights would pay, you know what I mean? Kind of was what energy subsidies and taxation are about, right? I mean, that is, there is an underlying social assessment that's happening. Anytime you tax anything or subsidize anything, you're basically saying that thing is worthy of being extra taxed or being subsidized. And I think there is a value judgment there. And that's what the entire system of taxation and subsidy is based upon. Hold on, I think think you have to say there's a big difference here between taxing energy which has an externality, which is a judgment, and taxing a particular use of energy. I think those are two radically different things. I agree with you. I agree with you. But I think we have an entire system of subsidies and taxation in around the world. Every government has a system of that. And it's, ultimately, it's predicated on some kind of value judgment. Of it, course. It just is, that's, right? And so That's inherent to the Gouvian That is tax. inherent to the system. It's inherent to the system. So to say that there is going to be a taxation or subsidy scheme that is not values-laden, I think, I don't think that's inc- I don't think that's correct. The question is what values are underlying that. And that's the question I kind of want to get to, sure. in this, which is, you know, part of the challenge I think around that Bitcoin has uh, optically is that it is perceived as a full-on, truly libertarian to the point of almost, you know, exit systems altogether uh, philosophy that underlies it. And I'm curious as an actual philosopher, you know, who's been in this space, do you agree with that? Because I actually disagree with that. I'll just kind of put that out there. I actually think that there are a lot more political positions one could have and be quite supportive of the Bitcoin proposition. But nevertheless, the optics remain that the dominant philosophical modality is hyper, I would almost say, libertarianism. And I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's compatible with a wide range of, of philosophies and political philosophies. Uh, I, I'm mystified by there's agreement both among hardcore Bitcoiners and also the Bitcoin's most severe critics that it is somehow married to libertarianism. And it's like, no, uh, how do you th- <laughs> yeah. I mean, how do you think about the Internet? Do you think the Internet is uh, inherently libertarian? Are we living in a libertarian society just because we have the Internet? Fundamentally, what Bitcoin allows you to do is to send value peer to peer. And it also allows you to store value in a way that cannot be debased by a central bank. And if your philosophy is committed to uh, not allowing people to send value to one another or not allowing people to save in a way that a central bank cannot debase, then you will be against Bitcoin. That's it. I mean, anything more than that is a fabrication. And And I have to say also that the image of Bitcoin and what we're talking about 
is really limited to an American context, a European context. I think that where if you look at where actual Bitcoiners are and who is dealing in Bitcoin, uh, still, uh, probably the majority is in Asia, right? It's probably in like, a lot of it's in China still. 20% of the mining is still in China. That's what happens when you ban mining in China. 20% still there, according to Cambridge. But there's a lot in Vietnam. There's a lot in Korea. And there's a lot in, in Africa. There's a lot of Houston, Nigeria. Uh, you know, there's, it's Turkey. It's Lebanon. Do they associate Bitcoin with libertarianism? Or is it just a way to get around capital controls? Well, I guess that is kind of libertarianish. Is it just a way to survive in the face of, of a debasing currency in Argentina, right? I think this is incredibly... U.S. and Eurocentric, and almost a luxury to think of Bitcoin, this technology, as married to a particular narrow political philosophy, which I don't subscribe to myself, never have. I agree. I, I think that's such a great place to leave us. And I think that part of what's happening with policy in the United States is that you know Bitcoin is being caught up in the very zero-sum political environment that we have, which whether it's state versus federal or party versus party or, you know, one arm of a party versus another arm of a party in some cases, right? It's caught up in the entire climate debate, which is extraordinarily political in the United States, whether people acknowledge that or not. I know. But interestingly enough, like there are actually more agreement that I see in sort of far right and far left circles on certain climate issues than there are in, 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 in across other kinds of politics. So everything is just wild right now. But fundamentally, I do think the narrative is caught up in a very Western-centric view of the world. Um, which is not shared by the vast majority of the population of the world. And that is a, an important reminder, I think, for everyone. It's also the reason why any Bitcoin banning sort of activity that happens in the United States is not going to uh, really change a lot of the dynamics around uh, mining or around any of this. It's simply going to push this activity to other places that may or may not be open to supporting, Troy, the models like the one that you propose here. As always on this show, you know, we try to kind of contextualize things, not just within any particular political moment, but kind of think about the bigger picture. And I, I think that what you just said at the end there is exactly is dead on. And this is far bigger than one political philosophy. It's far bigger than one country's politics or even one state's politics. Uh, and it would, I think, be uh, it would behoove us to to remember that <laughs> as we as we engage in these kinds of conversations. Yeah. The, yeah. the question is, how how quickly can we kind of get to that point where we move beyond the sort of the politicization of it, because it does feel at the moment as if we've gone backwards. And I, I think, yes, there is a world in which suddenly everyone realizes this thing is bigger than politics and you just work with it as a, as a phenomenon, as opposed to you yes. know, something that has got this value judgment associated with it. Thank you, Troy Cross, so much for being with us. Uh, Sheila Warren, my, my co-host, thanks as always. And thank you to all of you for listening once again to Money Reimagined. You can subscribe to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Thank you. Bye for now. You've been listening to Money Reimagined with Michael Casey, Sheila Warren, and guest Troy Cross. This episode has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Our executive producer is Jared Swartz. Our theme song is Aida by Neon Beach. Download wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagine. Or you can reach out to me directly at Michelle with one L at coindesk.com. Thanks for listening.